All right. How's everybody doing? Everybody good? All right. I'll try really hard to not say or do anything to screw that up for you. <laughs> car washes? Saving money on car washes. Ah, I save a lot of money on car washes by praying for rain. <laughs> People see some of the junkers I drive, they say, why don't you wash that? It's because every time I wash my car, I have to get a tetanus shot. <laughs> kind of interesting. I'm a little bummed out today. Uh, later this afternoon, uh, somebody's supposed to come to tow yet another junk car off our property out there. So ladies, you'll appreciate this. Uh, my wife has actually won that battle. Uh, I've <laughs> finally had to concede that junk cars do not make good lawn ornaments. <laughs> so, you know, I don't call them junk cars. They're project vehicles. But... <laughs> Finally getting to that age where I realize those projects are never going to happen, so we're kind of thinning the herd out a little bit, and hate to see them go, but not really. So, so that's uh, that's what goes on in my life. <laughs> I don't have a segue into what we're talking about with that today, but oh well. <laughs> but today we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about living one day at a time and uh, continuing Mike's series, which I particularly love. Anytime we land on a series where the topic has to do with our conception of God, I'm all in. Because you've probably heard me say here before, if there was only one topic that I could talk to people about, that would be the one. Because in my personal life, I realized that the greatest struggles I had all seemed to do with my misconception of God. The way that I looked at him sideways poisoned everything else I thought I knew about life. So I'm really excited about having an opportunity to touch on this a little bit today. The particular passage we're covering is in Hebrews, the third chapter, a couple of verses, Uh, The Bible tells us, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. One of the things that the Bible encourages us all to do is to live in the now, to live in the day. And for some of us, that seems to be kind of a hard thing to do. What I didn't realize is it's always today. I happened to walk through a a local restaurant. The lounge in there had, you know, one of those eclectic places that all looked kind of like my garage at home and stuff hanging everywhere. And they had this sign there in front of the bar that said, free beer tomorrow. <laughs> and of course, the joke is you show up tomorrow. Well, it's not free beer day. That's tomorrow. It's always today, today. And I figure if bars in town can figure that out, maybe we can too. <laughs> because But I needed to be taught that because I didn't get that concept. I've been uh, accused of being a little bit neurotic, which means that in my loud head, I tend to live both in the past and in the future. 
I'd like to think that I've made progress with that because I don't live there anymore. I just visit occasionally. <laughs> but what I've experienced is that when I'm living in the past, that is where both regret and resentment live. When I'm living in the past, what I'm always thinking of is coulda, shoulda, woulda, and if only. If only I would have zigged instead of zagged, and if only that other person would have done this instead of that. If only, coulda, shoulda, woulda. And the problem with living in the past is that none of us can change the past. We can use it, we can capitalize on it, but we can't change it. And conversely, I also spent a lot of time living in the future. And it's my experience that the future is where fear lives. When I'm living in the future, then my question is, what if? What would you do if? And I'm constantly conjuring up scenarios, trying to figure out my plan A, B, C, D, F, and G. <laughs> if this happens, if that goes wrong, what will I do here? What will I do there? And fear lives in that future. So when I finally hit a personal bottom and crash-landed and crawled into recovery, uh, one of the concepts that they taught me was this idea of living one day at a time. You know, I saw it on bumper stickers and plaques on the wall. And you wouldn't think that addicts or alcoholics would have a problem with living one day at a time, would you? <laughs> when you think about it, there's a huge irony there. Who better than people like me have mastered the art of living one day at a time? If the rent is due on Thursday and it's only Wednesday, it's perfectly acceptable to drink up the rent money because <laughs> it's not Thursday yet. It's perfectly acceptable to plug that money into a video lottery machine on Wednesday because it's not Thursday. And then, ironically, we crash land into recovery and then, oh, living one day at a time, how are we going to do that? I constantly run into people like there was one guy, man, I don't know if I can stay sober during my daughter's wedding. I go, well, how old is your daughter? Two. <laughs> I think we're going to have some time to work through this. <laughs> but that's how we think. It really is. So... The concept they laid on me, which I go back to all the time, is that all I have to do is make it until midnight. Tomorrow is another day. And I know I can make it until midnight because I have enough money in my pocket. I have enough gas in my tank. I have enough food in the fridge. Nothing really bad is going to happen before midnight. I get to worrying about what am I going to do next week, next year, uh, you know, 20 years from now. But I don't have to worry about that as long as I stay in today and only worry about making it until midnight. Tomorrow is another day. And that might sound trite or it might sound like self-hypnosis. But the longer I try to apply that, the more practical it becomes. And with that in mind... What the Bible tells us here is there's one great thing back there in Matthew, the sixth chapter, where it tells us, 
So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The King James puts puts it as sufficient unto the day are the evils thereof. (laughs) Kind of poetic. But that really is so true that my problem all my life has really been priority. Because I put all these earthly things ahead of spiritual development. I don't have time to get around to that because I got stuff that needs to be done now. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to go? And the more that I can prioritize getting my spiritual house in order, the more the rest of those things seem to kind of fall into their natural place. So with that in mind, what we're looking at a little bit today is the things that God tells us. And what I love about God and how he does business is God doesn't just tell us what to do. He often shows us what to do. That was one of the main points of Christ, and that's what we're talking about in this series, is how God showed up in a human body and modeled so many things that were only concepts before. He didn't just tell us how to live, he showed us how to live. And one of the object lessons that we get out of the Bible, when it talks about God dispensing his grace. If you remember the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament and how specifically God fed them in the desert for 40 years, he gave them manna. In the book of Exodus, the 16th chapter, it talks about, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. What we get out of that object lesson is, first of all, God provided for their daily needs, specifically their daily bread. And he also provided the right amount, so everybody got what they needed. The rest of that story was sometimes the Israelites experienced fear. I mean, 40 years, something shows up. Eventually, you'd start to think, I I think I can trust this, right? (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) They're deep into this, and they're still going, well, I know that showed up every day, six days a week, and on the seventh day, we had plenty on that sixth day. We could cook it and boil it, and we could save it, you know, for the Sabbath every week without fail. You'd think they'd they'd trust that, but no. And so what? a lot of times they'd go out and think, well, I better grab a little extra. And then they'd find the next morning that it got moldy and and wormy and gross. So the lesson there was if their fear caused them to grab too much, it didn't do them any good. It didn't last. 
but they just had to be taught the lesson that every day God is going to provide, and he did. But it's kind of funny how even though every day he did that, they still didn't quite trust it for the future. A good lesson in fear. So the first part of this is we're going to start looking at the what, at the when, the what, the how, and the why of specifically how God provides for our needs. And part of the when, as we're talking about, when does God provide for our needs? And the right answer is every day, daily. One of the main things Christ taught us to ask God for in the Lord's Prayer was give us this day our daily bread. Now, if I wrote that prayer, I'd say, Lord, give me enough bread to last the rest of my life so I can get on with other things. (laughs) Give me a whole warehouse full of bread and I'll quit asking you. (laughs) But that's not how God does business. Give us this day our daily sustenance, our daily bread. And so that is how God does it. And What I've experienced in my life that was very profound to me is that God's grace is dispensed on a daily basis and on an as-needed basis. And I've had some rather profound lessons of how I've experienced that, where what finally dawned on me is I have a lot of fear today because I have this much of everything I need. And I know the days are coming in the future where I'm going to need that much. When that day comes, miraculously, I have everything I need that day. But because I don't have it in advance, I worry about having it then. For instance... Uh, I've got a bad knee because that's usually what I use to walk home on. And uh, and this bad knee of mine years ago, I needed to have it fixed, and I put it off for years. I'd be limping around, and it wasn't a major surgery, but it just needed to be fixed. And But I put it off. I had this tremendous fear because I knew that the days when I wasn't having it fixed yet, I just, man, I couldn't. Uh, imagine handling the pain and the hassle of it and the expense of it. And finally, I get desperate and I schedule this surgery. And I woke up the day of the surgery, and the night before, I'm just anticipating being wound up in a knot because of all this stuff I'd worried about for years. The day I woke up and that that was scheduled to be done, I was perfectly calm, perfectly calm. And then I started worrying about that. (laughs) Did I lose my mind? I should be scared. This is a big deal. And I couldn't even conjure any fear. Because that day I had everything I needed to go in, get this done, deal with the aftermath. I was fine. I wasn't fine the day before, but it wasn't the day yet. And I was fine the next day because I had exactly what I needed that day. And that's just one of many examples I could give you of how God has worked with me to help me understand we get what we need on a daily basis, and we get exactly what we need that day. So 
That's kind of the when and a little bit of the what of how God operates. The second part that we get out of this passage in Exodus is that God is more concerned for our needs than our wants. And I think there's a simple reason for that. Our needs are always satisfied. It's, I mean, we, we can be hungry, but I haven't seen anybody starving to death in a long time. I mean, somehow God provides for people. He provides food, clothing, shelter, what we need. But he's not so invested in our wants. And the way God gave me an object lesson in that is he gave me the dad I had. (laughs) If you knew my dad, you'd know that he, like God, was all about providing for his family's needs. Their wants, not so much. (laughs) But my dad, like God Almighty, knows that our wants are insatiable. Our wants are always growing because they're fed by our ego. If you give me something I want, all I start thinking is, what else can I get? What's the next thing? If I'm walking, all I want is a pair of shoes. But if I walk too long and I have shoes, I'm thinking, I really would like a bicycle. (laughs) You give me a bicycle, I'm thinking, wouldn't that be cool if this had a motor on it? (laughs) Put a motor on it, now I have a moped. But it's not a Harley. <laughs> you give me a Harley, and that's great until it gets cold out and I'm eating bugs, and I think a car would be nice right about now. Any car. Give me a car, and that's pretty good until somebody pulls up at the stoplight in a Corvette. Hey, <laughs> I did not get a Corvette. <laughs> I got a Chevette. <laughs> so... It's a great way to get a gal out in the parking lot. Hey, you want to go over for a ride in my vat? Yeah, <laughs> Anybody remember when they made those things? <laughs> if you got one of those on the road, you've got something. <laughs> I wouldn't even park that in my driveway. <laughs> but, but that's how our, our wants are insatiable. We want, we want, we want. But our needs are what God is primarily concerned with and especially to give us an abundance, not so we can have more, but so we have provisions, ample provisions to provide for others also. And you see, that's how God blesses us, so we can bless others as an extension of that. And that makes pretty good sense once you understand what God is up to. The other thing that God provides, I learned, is... There are certain circles, like in 12-step recovery, where the prayers are pretty simple. And what I learned in there is basically we only ask God for three things, four things actually, if you include forgiveness, which I highly recommend. (laughs) But beyond asking God for forgiveness, the three main things we are taught to ask God for are knowledge, willingness, and power. Well, I got all this stuff I need. I, I need more than knowledge, willingness, and power, don't I? Well, do I? You see, if God gives me knowledge of his will for me and a change of heart so I want to act on that knowledge and he gives me the power to carry it out, I can literally move mountains if I have those three things. Beyond that, I I am equipped to do what needs to be done. My failures in life, on the other hand, were due by wrong knowledge, (laughs) 
my head seems to tell me things need to be done that don't need to be done. And it provides a willingness to do the wrong thing. And sometimes things don't get done because I lack the power to do the right thing. So when I boil things down to that foundational understanding, it starts to make more sense on how God answers my prayers when I try to ask him for what I need instead of what I want. It's a lot like parenting. If your child asks you for a cookie, as a good parent, you don't just hand them a cookie. What that does is it tells you the child is hungry and you try to provide something nutritious for him or her. If your child wants a bottle of pop, well, that means that your child is thirsty, and you might suggest water or fruit juice or something more nutritious. But at least by asking for something, you know you know what they want, but you also, as a good parent, know what they need. And you try to give them what they need, not just what they want. But when it goes back to that knowledge and willingness and power, asking God for those things it started to make sense to me where my failure was. When this passage talks about ending up being hardened by sin's deceitfulness and ending up with hardened hearts, my problem my whole life is when God revealed his will to me, I didn't know that God also was going to give me a change of heart where I wanted to do his will. I didn't know he was going to give me the power to do his will. It's like he sent me a package in the mail, like Amazon.com, and you open the package, and on top there's knowledge of God's will. I'd take it out, look at it, go, I didn't order this. (laughs) And then I'd run down the street screaming. I didn't open the rest of the package and dig down through the wrapping peanuts and say, oh, There's willingness where if I install this, I want to do this thing. And then I dig a little deeper in the box, and my God, there's the power to carry it out. And if I install that, if I have knowledge, willingness, and power, it gets done. But I used to believe that God just tells us what to do, and then he sits there and laughs at me as I fail miserably. (laughs) I knew you couldn't do that. (laughs) Of course I can't. But if he gives me all that I need, it gets done. And that helped me immensely to start understanding a little more of how God operates. And the lie in the Garden of Eden, if you'll recall Mike's teachings on that, how the first lies of that serpent in the garden were designed to sever the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. He told lies to Adam and Eve in order to get them to look at God sideways. Does he really have your best interests at heart? Can you really trust that guy? Do you think he really has your back? You know, he's holding out on you. You know, he could do more for you, but he doesn't want to because, you know, there's some reasons why he can't be trusted. And once he got Adam and Eve to look at God sideways... Then he had them, because now, once they unplugged that umbilical cord from God, what's left to do? They plugged it into nature. They plugged it into the things of this world. They plugged it into each other. They tried plugging it into themselves. But nowhere did that fit. 
And you see, that as an extension of that original lie that caused the original sin. That's the problem we have to this day, because if I believe that God cannot or will not help me, then I guess it's up to me, or it's up to you to fulfill my needs, or it's up to this world to fulfill my needs. And all of a sudden, it all falls on me, since God isn't going to protect me, I have to provide for my own protection. I gotta find my own provision. I need to find my own sources of power. I need to create things that will give me my own peace. I need to arrange for my own prosperity. I need to find my own popularity. I need to find my own purpose. It's a lot of peace. Mike would be proud. <laughs> it's a lot of alliteration going on there. <laughs> but I need to provide all of these things for myself. And really, at the root, I'm missing the biggest thing that starts with the letter P of all, presence. Because God is absent, it falls on me to provide all those other things. And isn't it just true that when we worry, we conjure these things in our mind, and it's really David and Goliath, and I'm David. I'm this little person facing this huge thing and my family isn't there, my friends aren't there, Hope Church doesn't have my back, God isn't there, his protecting angels aren't there, it's just me. Nothing could be farther from the truth because God is there, his angels are there, people are there, but we never incorporate that into our worrying, do we? It's always us and us alone. So the more that God's presence is there, the more that we can start to trust him because he's not on vacation. And that leads to, you know, part of the how of God does this is providing these things that we can fall back on to understand what he's up to. But then what we really get into, and I think this is the real crux of the problem, is sooner or later we have to address the why. And you see, this is where I always got stuck with my conception of God. It's not so much how he's going to help me or when he's going to help me or, or uh, uh, what he's going to do to help me. None of that matters if I don't really trust him. Why should God help me? And you see, this is where the one of the biggest lies of all in all of our heads, because we have these lying lower natures, I believe the number one thing our head lies to all of us about is it lies about God. It lies about God's nature, about God's character. It lies, our heads lie about how God is, who God is, what God is. And that's why I love this ministry at Hope Church, because more than anything, the consistent message that we try to lay down is the message of how God is. You've often heard me define the word gospel. The word gospel means good news. And that leads the question, okay, so what exactly is the news and what makes that news good? What is the good news? 
you get to go to heaven when you die? Well, that's pretty cool, but I got stuff right now that needs to happen. You see, it turns out the message of the New Testament, the gospel message of the Bible, here's the news. The news is there is a God, and that God is friendly. There is a God, and God not only loves you, he likes you, which is harder for most of us to get our head around than God loves us. God likes us. God is a friendly God. Now, if that just rocked your world, it makes me happy because you're in the right place. If you've heard that and you believe it, thank God that you know that and believe it. Because that is huge, to believe that God is a God of love. That's the great news. Everything else comes from that. And again, that's why I love this series and what we really come up against that challenges this belief that God is friendly and God is a God of love is exactly what this series is about today. How can we pull together these two seeming opposite conceptions of God that you can find in the Bible? As Mike explains it, on the one hand, God is great, but he's not good. On the other hand, God is good, but he's not great. What really helped me to pull all that together was a very similar teaching that came from C.S. Lewis. You've heard me talk about it up here before, but to me it's one of the most foundational things I've ever learned. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Problem of Pain. It's kind of a thick read like all of C.S. Lewis is. You know, make sure you buy aspirin when you buy the book. (laughs) That stuff to me is like eating double chocolate cheesecake. (laughs) One bite and you're done for a while. But I love C.S. Lewis, and he tackles some of the hardest, most complex issues. And in his book, The Problem of Pain, he knocked it out of the park for me. Because what he said basically was, The problem of pain, when we are in pain, we tend to look at God sideways. We're looking at him going, what's up? (laughs) Why? If you're so kind, if you're so benevolent, if you're so loving, if you have all this prosperity and you're so generous, why am I in this situation? Why am I in pain? if you're so great. And C.S. Lewis goes on to explain that that opportunity for our lower nature to deceive us at those low points in our life, what we tend to do is form one of two opposite conceptions of God. On the one hand, you have a God standing here like this, with his pockets turned out, shabby clothes, he's poor. And he's going, dude, I see you hurting there, and man, I want to help you. I do. I feel for you, brother, but you know what? I'm kind of tapped out here. I got nothing for you. I wish I did. If I did, I'd give it to you, but I, I'm, bro- I'm broke too. I'm more broke than you are. Oh, you got money problems? You know, I wish I could help you. I was kind of hoping you'd flip me an extra couple of bucks in the collection plate because <laughs> I'm broke. I love you. Wish I could help you. I feel for you but I got nothing. And in that case, you have what's called an impotent God, 
a God with no power, a God with no resources. A God like that is less than a God. On the other hand, you have a God like this, tremendously powerful, rich beyond measure, trillionaire, standing here like this going, oh, I see your pain, I see your suffering. Yeah, that's pretty tough, pretty tough down there, and I could help you, but I don't want to. <laughs> I'm not going to lift a finger. I could, but I have the resources, I have the power to fix that, but nah, I'm just going to pass on this one. Oh, you got money problems? Oh, I'm a trillionaire. I could just fix that with pocket change, but not going to. And you see, in that case, you don't have an impotent God. What you have is a very indifferent God. And that's almost worse, isn't it? And I didn't see a third option, because my lying head isn't ever going to tell me the truth. <laughs> C.S. Lewis had to do that. God through C.S. Lewis. But I love how C.S. Lewis addressed that because the answer, how do you bring these two opposites together? What's the third option there? And you see, the whole answer was contained in the Lord's Prayer in two words. Our Father. Our Father. Remember how one of the main things that they wanted to kill Christ for, the Jewish leaders, the blasphemy, of him referring to God not only as his father, he called him Abba, my daddy. <gasps> oh, the horror. You can't call God daddy. <laughs> How did we have to kill this guy on principle? <laughs> How can you call God daddy? Our father, our Abba, who heart in heaven. And that just flipped a switch with me because I thought, how many people here are parents? In fact, how many people here have had parents? <laughs> That's about 100% right there. I'm not even good with math. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's almost all of them. <laughs> but, but now, how many people would admit, without raising hands, maybe your parents weren't Stellar parents. <laughs> yeah, maybe you see because God's ideal with family, <laughs> and that's okay, because God's ideal with family, the ideal was to model both love and law in two parents. You can't do it with one, but it, you can kind of do it with two. So generally, you know, and I'm talking high ideals here, not practical realities, but in theory, if you had a, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman in the family, one would take on the law role, the disciplinarian, usually the dad, wait till dad gets home, <laughs> and the father would be the, the legalist, you know, and the father is usually the one that had standards and expectations, and you had to please dad. On the other hand, you had the more maternal role, usually the mother, but not always, but somebody that modeled the grace side of it. You can always go home. You, I will love you unconditionally. Serial killers, you have everybody in the courthouse on the prosecution side and one person on the defense side, mom. <laughs> Seen that play out again and again. Their mom is there no matter what they did. 
So you have the love of God modeled by one side, the law of God on the other. It's been said about fathers and about God. They're, they're very easy to please. Or they're, uh, fathers and God are both very easy to please but hard to satisfy. <laughs> it's always, oh, you can do this, do a little more, a little more. But how can you wrap all that into one person? And you see, this is where it started to make sense what God is up to when you see him as a parent and not just as a God. Our Father. How many people here think it's stellar parenting to give your kids everything they want? Anybody? (laughs) What happens when you just dish it out to your kids in unlimited measure? They become spoiled. Kind of like manna got spoiled when they took more than they needed for that day. Spoiled kids, spoiled rotten. So we don't just shell things out to kids, and why wouldn't we give our kids something? If they had a money problem, why wouldn't you just hand them cash? If they have a a relationship problem, why wouldn't you just drive across town with a baseball bat and fix that for them? (laughs) If they have uh, another problem, why would you withhold your love from your own child? And, of course, you already know the answer. You're not withholding your love. Just the opposite. You're modeling your love. Lessons are what we get in life when we don't get what we want. (laughs) See, God is more concerned about our long-term development than he is our short-term pleasure. That makes sense to me. God wants us to develop. He wants us to grow. He wants us to become stronger and more mature. And the way he does that sometimes is he allows limited challenges. You see, do you want your kids to suffer pain? No. But is pain inevitable in this fallen world? Yes, it is. Would you let your kid learn to ride a bicycle? That's kind of cruel, isn't it? What if they fall off? What if they skin their knee? Oh, my God, we can't let that happen. Let's just lock this child in a padded room in the basement until they turn 21. (laughs) They'll never get a skinned knee, never get a broken heart, never have pain or problems. But that's not life. So the same day you go to the hardware store and buy them a bike, you buy them training wheels and a box of bandages. (laughs) You don't shove them off the bike, but you know that's part of the controlled environment where they suffer some short-term pain for the greater good. And the best part about pain is it softens our hearts and makes us more sympathetic for those who still suffer. If we see this part of our development as benefiting other people, then the last tumbler, I think, falls into place and it all starts to make perfect sense. Christ himself, I suffered that I might know suffering. We suffer that we might have softer hearts. If you've had, a, if burn victims can pick burn victims out of a crowd, they see somebody with those scars and they go, I know what that guy felt. My heart bleeds for that guy. I've been there. How could it not? 
You'd have to be a sociopath to not feel other people's pain when you felt pain like that. And you see, that's the point. So what we start to understand here, and I think the best example of that that we'll wrap this up with is, do you remember the story of, I think the King James called it the prodigal son? I looked up the word prodigal. I thought, what does that mean anyway? Prodigal just meant uh overflowing or lush or, you know, in the respect of, you know, and it really wasn't a prodigal son. It was the prodigal father is the correct term for that because it was the father that was overflowing with with love. But in the NIV, it just calls it the story of the, the lost son, which is also correct. But remember that story where, yeah, I'm not going to read it, but it's printed in here out of the book of Luke. But the thing that struck me is this son goes to his father, and what does he ask for? A lifetime supply of everything he needed. Give me my share of the estate. I'm living here. You're providing for me every day, but that's not good enough. I want it all now. Okay, and his father wanted him to learn a lesson, so what did he do? Gave him everything now. Here's your entire share of the estate. So he collects everything he had. What's he do with it? Goes into town and he wastes it on what's called riotous living. <laughs> Anybody know what that means? <laughs> not good, not pretty. But he goes in there and he squanders it. And then what happens? There's a great famine in the land. He ends up with no resources, completely broke, and he ends up feeding pigs. Now, if you're a young Jewish lad, to feed pigs is about as low as you can go. So, and he's jealous of the pigs because they're eating better than he is. <laughs> he's looking at the pig food going, man, that's looking pretty good right now. And then the Bible says he came to himself. He came to. The blinders came off. And he went, you know, I had it pretty good at home. My father's servants not only have food to eat, they have an abundance. I have nothing. The pigs are eating better than me. I should go home and beg my father to make me a servant in his house. At least there I'll have something to eat. So he goes back home, and he has this little speech prepared of how he's going to admit his wrongs to his father and ask for a position as a servant and beg for forgiveness. He didn't even get to blurt that out. His father sees him when he was a long way off, which meant he was watching the road for him. And he runs to him, throws his arms around him, puts his coat on him, puts his ring on his finger, and kills the fatted calf and rejoices. My son was dead and now he's alive. He's lost and now he's found. See, that is what parenting looks like. And that's how God is. If he doesn't give you what you need, eh, maybe there's a reason. If he doesn't give you what you want, eh, maybe there's a reason. But I flat guarantee that the one reason God has is love. God has one reason why he does what he does and why he refuses to do what he refuses to do. Love. That might be hard to believe sometimes. But when we look at God sideways, no one who sees God as the problem can see him as a solution. God is the solution. If you don't believe that, keep coming back. 
We're going to keep wrestling with this. I don't expect you to one and done buy into this. You're right. That makes sense today. And I'm, oh, I got it. It's a challenge. It's hard to get our heads around this. But at least we're hoping to point people in the right direction, to consider some alternative points of view. Because if all I'm listening to is my head, (laughs) good luck with that. Let me know how that works for you. (laughs) That will call the worship team forward and we'll close. I couldn't think of a better way of wrapping this service up than to publish on the back of our worship bulletins the original form of our serenity prayer, which we did an entire series on, by the way. But I think this really hits all the high notes of what we're talking about in this series. It simply says, God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I might be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Thank you.